Okay, the chicken you bought for six copper pieces succeeds on its system shock roll and is successfully polymorphed into a heavy warhorse. The garrison commander agrees to buy yet another warhorse for 300 gold pieces. Can we please start the dungeon now? Hello and welcome back to another day of adventure with the Grognards. My name's Dean Geiken, and off to my right, as usual, I'm Eric Hawley. And to my left, Greg Ziegler. And if you couldn't tell from my introduction, we are talking about adventures, and the topic is adventure design. And I think a very good person to run this session would be Eric. So how about you take the dice and lead the campaign? Thank you, Dean. Yeah, um, as I mentioned before, you know, I watch a lot of Facebook groups that relate to D&D, 5th edition, and even original edition. A lot of times, uh, new people just just gotten to the hobby will post stuff, and uh, a lot of them ask about, how do I make a good adventure? So I figured... <laughs> yeah, gee. <laughs> you know, you can use, you know, the canned adventures, but a lot of people who want to DM, they want that homebrew. They want to make it themselves, and that's part of the fun. That's why I enjoy DMing. Um, so I figured it'd be a good good podcast to talk about how how we design adventures or and what we appreciate in an adventure. So uh, before we go yeah. on, do you think some people are just when they request that? I know that they're being. I hope they're being sincere, but sometimes they're just looking for the stuff that they don't have to you know come up with there on their own. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, I plagiarize, plagiarize. That's why God made your eyes. My favorite <laughs> favorite quotes. Um, and every adventure, I think, that even I design, it starts a lot of times I'll listen to a podcast and I'll think, oh, that would be a great, great start for an adventure. But then I twist it and I, I make it my own, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I don't well, think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Well, the thing of it is, is, you know, there are no new ideas anymore and it's, you know, pointless to have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something. I mean, and I don't think people mind. I mean, it's. And. You know, that's a good lead-in for point number three on our outline. We're going to jump around a little bit. Um, you know, there's a, there's a book out there by a guy named Christopher Booker, um, and he talks about how there's really only seven plots to any story. And one of the ways to think about adventures are, you know, it's, back to my phrase, cooperative storytelling. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, you know, we set up a, a world, and the players then move their characters through it. That's what they control. We control everything else. But these seven basic plots, and I'll just go through them really quickly, um, overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. And if we think about that, uh, uh, most of the time in D&D, we're doing a overcoming the monster adventure. That or a quest. Or a quest is probably number two. And then the third one, the second one, uh, rags to riches. Sometimes we'll be telling that story through a campaign arc. Um, I always enjoy starting my characters, uh, my players out as slaves or prisoners um, to get a true rags to riches feel. Unfortunately, no. Maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately. Oftentimes my group tends to turn it into a comedy, whether it's intended that way or not. But, <laughs> you know, nice. there's a I don't know if I'd want to run a whole campaign, but there was an old AD&D module that was sort of a comedic and for the life of me, I can't remember what. Yeah, I recall. Uh, it might have uh, been one of the UK ones, uh, the series that came yeah. over from England, but uh, maybe one of our listeners will, will recognize it. But, um, 
that can be fun at times to have sort of like a, a tongue-in-cheek. Um, in one uh, adventure I had, the uh, group that was going through um, in the dungeon, they started to hear all kinds of loud noises and, you know, laughing and, and raucous and uh, come around a corner and they find a group of people that are armed, armored, but they have, you know, funny hats on and they all have martinis <laughs> in their hands and, and they're having a good time. And they said, well, what's going on? And they said, well, we're an adventuring party. Right. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, Emphasis on the party. party. You know, now, uh, was it appropriate in a serious, you know, doom and gloom setting? Probably not. But this dungeon sort of was a more lighthearted attempt. Um, so so we, do, we do put comedy in there. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, so I guess it was um, uh, the adventures EX1 and EX2, which I'll have to there do you. a little bit of searching. But they were based on the Alice in Wonderland. Yes, yes, that was them. And I believe they were, weren't they from England? I think, I think so, yeah. because I have one of them. And I was reading it, and I was like, oh, my my people will never Yeah, for do people this. that weren't playing back then, uh, the stuff that came over from England was a little quirky. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got into D&D almost as quickly as the U.S. They weren't far behind, and they might have even been ahead at some point. But um, every time I pick something up from there, even the Fiend Folio that came over, the monsters were just a little little different. Love uh, the Fiend Folio. Maybe that's something we should talk about is some of the uh, stuff that came out in the, uh, in the good old days. Yeah, the... the and still useful today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other plots that we don't use as much, but maybe we should, the voyage and return. Now, we, you know, we sort of travel time, at least in my campaign. You know, 20 days goes by, you're where you want to be. Uh, but really, that could be a whole adventure in, a, in and of itself. The trick is not to, keep it, not to make it boring. Right. You know, we want to make it yeah. exciting. And then... Um, Tragedy is another one. I don't know if we want the whole adventure to be tragedy because Hamlet didn't really end well for most of the individuals involved. <laughs> and I do think that uh, for your players, you want to have some uh, reward, and having a full tragedy just can kind of be a little tedious, I think, on them. Well, and if it's too heavy a tragedy, you may not be able to continue on from there if the you know Good point. tragedy involves player death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and normally it would because... <clears throat> For many players, nothing matters except their character, right? Mm, that's true. But that leads us to number, uh, the last one, number seven, which is Rebirth, which in D&D terms, um, you know, involves bringing your character back to life. I mean, we had a big campaign arc with Greg's character in my home game where his character died, right? And and Again. Uh, well, <laughs> I think the first, the hill giant death. Yeah, yeah okay. the biggie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how long did it take to get that character back? Because the remains Are you talking were... about game time or play time? Because play time, I played another character for, I don't know, at least four or five runs, I think. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's the campaign we only play once a month. Yeah. So then, so that yeah took a little bit of while, but in the yeah in game time, yeah they were packing my corpse around for a little. Well, they had to find me. They first. had to find the corpse. That was yeah. the hard part. That was the tricky part. And uh, yeah, pay, paying for the paying for a resurrection wasn't a problem because by that point we were pretty well off but uh yeah that was um that was very interesting to have to yeah temporarily run somebody else um you know in a class i wasn't accustomed to and uh and then drop right back into i i believe i was playing one of the npcs yeah so and that's helpful too because then you've already got a handle on uh you know how that character is supposed to be going and, and then, uh, I, in a way, mechanically, but it was it was that. fun. It uh, you know, I mean, you know, I didn't I didn't mind it, and I was looking forward to the you know redemption at the end of the arc. It, it uh, maybe didn't quite play out as dramatically as I thought it would, but um, you know, that's 
way things go sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And that well, certainly wasn't on what was going on in the adventure, but maybe the... Let's face it, you're coming back from death. How much yeah. more dramatic can that be? I that mean, was pretty <laughs> dramatic for my character. The other characters didn't seem to think it was a big deal. Oh, oh, you're back. Cool. Awesome. Let's go. Here, shoot that thing over there. Which, uh, you know, I, I've, I think I've been a little... He, my character's been a little bit different since then, and I, and I don't know that anybody's really noticed. And that's the that's the interesting part of the whole thing is I don't, I don't think anybody has noticed that she's a little less lighter than she was. And and certainly I've been arguing about the do we really need to kill all these people? You know, I I don't know because you've been there. Been a, yeah, it's been a, it's been a subtle change, and yeah, you've been there. Yeah. So yeah, and and that's part of the the reason you have these sort of. You know, do I do for one thing? I, let's just make clear: I don't kill characters as a DM. As a DM dice kill characters, okay? and it's a player's. <laughs> That's what they all say. Player's job to not put themselves in a position that dice can kill them. But when a character dies, it's a really good opportunity to uh, tell a good story and and make it memorable. Um, so that tragedy really fits in. If everything's too easy, I don't think players appreciate that. And I see a lot of beginning DMs that make that mistake. They give out a lot of magic items to start with. Mm-hmm. They, they sort of hand out every fight's a walkthrough. Uh, I tend to go the other other direction. So, so those are sort of the premises for our adventure. But um, let's sort of go back to where uh, what the DM's guide tells us um, we should be doing, which is those three pillars for a good adventure. And this dates back to... Gary Gygax. I mean, he's the one that I believe um, included these three in, in uh, the original D&D, which is combat, social interaction, and exploration. Combat's pretty self-explanatory, um, unless we're talking about a different form of combat, like, uh, you know, uh, a long story arc where you're dealing with, you know, uh, opposing forces in a much more broader sense. But are you talking simply the hack and slash type. I think originally they're talking about hack and slash. And I what you're referring to, I would refer to as conflict. Okay. Right? As opposed to combat, which That's fair. isn't included in that, but I think is an important part of adventure design. You want conflict mm-hmm. that has to be resolved. That's part of storytelling. Um, I think new DMs tend to go, they lean towards the combat. That's the easiest thing. You can open a book, you have a monster with statistics, you throw it at the party. See how it falls out. See how it falls out. I know when back in the day when teenagers, most of our adventures were combat based. We we didn't do a lot of the other two. Yes, it was smash in the door, defeat the monster, take their stuff, and go get the next one. Exactly. Um, which is you know uh, there's some reward in that, but I think that wears very thin after your first initial couple of months of doing that as yep. a gamer. Yeah, um, you want some story. Yeah, you want to have something. You want to develop those characters. Um, and I think it's also rewarding for the DM because after a while, the DM is just like opening a page. There's a monster. Let's see if you can defeat it. Yeah. The the second part, exploration, um, a lot of that gets glossed over. And I was sort of happy to see in the new, the last hardcover, Tomb of Annihilation, because of course they've announced the next two hardcovers for uh, next year. But uh, Tomb of Annihilation had a hex map crawl, which, if people don't uh, remember, um, very similar to, I believe it was X1, Isle of Dread. Um, mm-hmm. That had a hex map, and the characters would go through, and you would roll for encounters. Right. Um, As you were traveling through this jungle island, yeah. and each 
area or space was basically you were exploring. Uh, you weren't really... It was analogous to exploring a dungeon. It just happened to be the jungle instead. Yeah. It gave you something to do, and it kept the plot moving along, though. And additionally, my players quickly realized back in the 1980s that dinosaurs were worth a ton of experience. <laughs> so they slaughtered every dinosaur they came across. Nice. <laughs> so the exploration part, you know, there's, there's a hex crawl, which is probably the easiest method to do it. But even – now let me ask you as players um, – in the games you currently run or play in, do you do you hand map or do you make your players hand map when you do those adventures? Hmm. Well, yeah. Well, in in yours, I don't know if any of us. Have, I can't. I don't think any of us have ever uh, pulled out a pencil and drawn a map for anything. Really? Um, yeah. Um, which is odd now that I think about it. And I hadn't really given that a whole lot of thought until we started uh, talking about this. But back in the day when I was playing in the 80s, we were playing Palladium in the 80s. Yeah, I was the one sitting there with the hex paper. Yeah. Hexing out the, the dungeon. To be fair, 80% of what we did was a dungeon crawl and you wanted to remember where you were at. Uh, part of it now is in my head. I, that was a very mechanical thing. You know, you needed to know where you were. You needed to know all this stuff. Now, today... In my head, I wouldn't do that because would my character be walking along with, you know, with ink and a paper drawing out the map? Or is my character walking along with a, with an arrow notched in the bow ready to shoot what's around the corner? Who is physically making the map in the game? Who has the time to do that? Well, Who's putting themselves at risk to do that? Uh, I think that's just all, from my perspective, part of the the practicality and the reality of playing is that in my head that's what's going on and no one is doing that now on a mechanical level we're all just old and lazy and we don't draw the map out and and eric is putting it up and we do it all on the uh, battle mat yeah with the wipe off markers you know once something gets wiped away oh we don't need to go there again don't worry about it well i've got for my part two aspects if i'm the dm i tend to kind of want the map to be accurate i know that that's maybe cheating a little bit and doing too much for the players but that's just because of my nature i i feel that you know if i give them an accurate map then the game will play better for them if i'm a player i'm the one making the map but greg you mentioned that you're in the game wondering is my character actually making the map that never occurred to me uh well maybe it did but i ignored it because the map for me is an instrument for the players whether I'm a player or a DM, I'm making that map so that the gameplay can be but, there is better a point to what Greg is saying. Now, back in original, when we used to play, we'd sit down and invariably somebody go, who's going to map? Right. right? Yes. So somebody always was the mapper. And we sort of assumed that that character was actually mapping because we used to have some, you know, and I myself was sort of a hard-nosed DM where – Players would get to a position where they go, well, this doesn't make sense. This this runs into this other one. And I describe what they say. And they had mapped it wrong based on my description. 100% yes. But my, our take and my take still is that the map is, hmm, how's the best way to describe this? Kind of metagamed. You know, the map really isn't being made by a character in the game. It's more of like the map is the memory 
of well, that's, the character. That yeah. is one way to think yeah, about that's it. That's what I was going to bring up, is the fact that we as players are not physically seeing the and that's, space. That's, I think, where <laughs> D&D is now. Almost never do I see a player mapping off the DM's description. And I'm not sure that's fun, but it is a part of the game that I know I've gotten away from. As a DM, it was sort of interesting. You have this dynamic where I'm going to describe 30-foot hallway, doorway 10 feet down on the right. Uh, it, it, there's a T-intersection at the end. And, and that's what the players have to go on, and they map it. If they map it wrong, they mm-hmm. put it wrong. That's akin to, you know, their player isn't perfect memory at measuring is not distances. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, your, your memory so. is fuzzy because, yeah, because yeah. that, that's actually, uh, as Dean was saying, and that's what I thought of while we were talking about this suddenly is that, well, yeah, the map is just merely an expression of the character's memory. And, uh, you know, as you draw it, that's the character's, you know. Now, the reason I don't do it anymore is because You've got I would much rather to do. fill that time with something different. Me and dis- that's a good taking point. that time to describe it. You know, we talk a lot about Adventures League. Um, you know, we have I do a lot of Adventures League play. I just ran a game a couple of weeks ago at a little local con we had here. And you have four hours to run a D&D adventure. I'm not going to waste an hour of that describing, you know, how big the room is, where the doorways are located, because that to me isn't the fun part of the game at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it yeah. could be. I mean, if it depends on the adventure, there could be a point where the DM says, "I'm not going to map this. I'm going to describe, well, and you guys map it." And again, when a player is doing the mapping, the mapping is only as good as the description or the accuracy of the DM when it's presented to the player. Um, and I think that's part of why, as a DM, I have my players map it. But if it's not right, I'll fix it a little bit because my players really do use the terrain and the map to their advantage and, and they should but some players they're not they're you know and some dms don't really care about all of the you know the little intricacies that they could use in a map to their advantage yeah I, you know just not to belabor this point because we don't want to spend too much <laughs> on it but you know i've been i'm writing an adventures league module for a, a convention next year and so i've been reviewing a lot of stuff and Modern modules almost never talk about room dimensions. They describe what's in the room, what you see, that kind of thing. But they don't, more Hmm. often than not, they don't say, you know, you open a doorway to see a 20 by 30 room. That's how I describe it. That's how old school modules describe it. But I've noticed a lot of new modules... You know, I guess I haven't really noticed it that much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I that was always my first question when you're playing with a real DM is, well, how big is the room? Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, but it's sort of interesting that, that D&D has gotten away from that particular aspect of exploration, mm-hmm. um, which can be fun if used appropriately. Right. Yeah. Well, and then there's always, are you using um, physical items, too? I remember we ran that thing. Uh, not that long ago um, where the game master had constructed we were using our minis and the game master had actually we were climbing this hill to get into this um, little underground fortress thing and he had actually physically built using cardboard and tape and wire and stuff he had built a 3d mountain yeah with the trees and the the large rock formations and there was no need to grid it out although he had actually he had put, grid, a, grid he had put a grid on it which <laughs> was kind of amazing but um yeah well would if if we were even if we were playing playing old school would somebody have sat and tried to draw that hill out well why would you do that it's it's right there on the table giant cardboard 3d hill um i i, I thought that was I don't kind know of if awesome I've, have I told my Car Wars uh, 
parking garage story? Probably not, right? I don't think you have but, here. When I was not in college, here. I had a, a roommate. Speaking of that, not that this has anything that's to how do with came anything up. Came up with the, that we're yeah. talking about right now, but we used to play Car Wars when I was in college. I had a good friend named uh, whose name was also Eric, but it was with a C instead of a K, so it was a totally different name. But um, he was an art major, and we had decided we were going to have a big Car Wars duel with another group that also played Car Wars on campus, and he made a 3D parking garage out of foam board that he had put the... Uh, you know, four squares per inch grid layered on top of it. And uh, it was three levels with ramps and pillars, and it was really cool. Um, so sometimes stuff like that is fun. And, and if yeah. we're talking about exploration, you know, giving the characters something to uh, look at, especially, if, you know, if you're using minis, that can sort of like, oh, I can't see behind that boulder. You know, it, it gives a lot of opportunities to... Yeah, that, that came up a lot in that adventure because there was a lot of large rocks there. And because and, I remember the first thing my character did was find the biggest rock and get on top of it to make sniper's nest out of it. And, um, and yeah, that was And that you was found good. three people were already on top of it in the hollow, I think. Yeah, yeah. but they, they, they didn't last long. That's um, a, I get two attacks per round. So the last, <laughs> let's talk about the last pillar here, social interaction. And this is one that a lot of new DMs, I think this is the toughest area. It's easy to run combat. You know, you have the stats, you throw them in, and if everything's not perfect, you know, you can always tweak during during play. And exploration, you know, you you can do a dungeon design ahead of time. Social interaction, a lot of people get nervous with, and even I struggle with with doing some social interaction. Like we talked about, you know, when you have a, a NPC that's romantically interested in a, in a player character, that yeah. can be awkward, you know, things like that. But also, uh, some DMs, are great at that. You know, you listen to Matt Mercer, Critical Role, and he does the voices of the NPCs, which adds so much to to uh, adventures. I don't do that. I, I don't do many voices except my own. You do accents. Yeah, everyone's own, but all my accents <laughs> the same, turn the into same, the same accent. The same accent, yeah. however, but yeah, it is an accent. Yeah, sort of that French, German. <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> I, don't, I can do it on command. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it'll come up. <laughs> well, um, and it is intimidating to do that social interaction because conversations don't happen um, in just the blink of an eye like they do in the game. I mean, when you enter the tavern, you're, there's a lot more going on in real life. And then all of a sudden the DM has to pretend to be you know, uh, the server, the bartender, the bouncer, the yeah. this, that, and the other thing. And that's a lot to do. And new DMs can be very intimidated. And I think if they don't do it well the first couple of times... It can kind of get, oh, I don't want to do that. Let's just kind of leave that alone type of thing. And that happened to me um, because when I was first starting off, we didn't do a lot of the social interaction because it was just so hard because, oh, my gosh, the, the players wanted to do this or they wanted to do that in the town or they wanted to talk to this person. And after a while, I was, like, tired. Yeah. I was tired. Well, and it was all in service of killing the monster and getting the gold. Yes. You know, it wasn't really... They were letting off yeah. steam, yeah. essentially. And, yeah, and, and, and in back in the day, and even a lot today, too, it's a lot of the character interaction is... There's not a whole... I don't see a lot of inter-character conflict going on because the characters all... You know, the players all want the characters to get along so we can achieve our goal of, you know, killing the frost dragon and, you know, getting the gold out of the tomb and, and that. So you're not going to have an argument because the elf character and the dwarf character don't get along. Now, again, I'm talking about social inter interaction between the players and the DM and 
those NPCs. You're talking social interaction between the characters. Yeah. Well, uh, while you're playing, aren't the players supposed to be playing in character? Yes. <laughs> but um, my take was the social yeah, interaction the between the players and the DM. Players, that's their okay. problem. I don't have to yeah, worry about If the that players the don't interact now, between themselves, that's their problem. You know, going back to what you were saying, Dean, I think uh, DMs try to avoid a lot of social interaction because a lot of it happens on the fly. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to come up with stuff on the fly. So let me throw out one tip that I have for any DMs that are struggling on that. Anytime your characters come across just a random NPC, give that NPC a distinguishing feature. So you walk into the, the boyer because you want to buy that you know brand new longbow. And behind there, there's a uh, half elf and he's got one eye, right? Characters will infatuate on that one eye part. Yeah. Nothing else matters because you <laughs> yeah. gave him a distinguishing feature. So that, and then in the future, they're like, "Well, what if we go talk to that one-eyed elf that sells yeah. those bows?" Yeah, nobody remembers his name, but he's the one-eyed right. elf. He's the one-eyed That's right. Elf. Yeah. So I found that, and it adds just a little bit of detail to an otherwise nondescript character. Now, of course, if the players, every merchant they run into has one eye, that sort of loses its luster. Yeah, right. Or there's something very peculiar going. On yeah, there's something in odd in this town. Everybody's got one eye. Um, <laughs> For those DMs who do good social interaction, I find that to be some of the most rewarding games that I've played in. And I my hat's off to them because that is a tough thing to do. Yeah, and it depends on your group, too. Some groups want to spend a lot of time doing the social aspect of the and some groups just want to kill things. Oh, yes, and so, some just don't feel comfortable doing that type of thing they they aren't either comfortable in their character skin maybe they're not even comfortable in their own skin and they're kind of you know still kind of getting used to the whole real life social interaction that's another dm trick um yeah if you have players who are you want them to speak in the first person but they're not they're my character says a lot of there's nothing wrong with that like i said there's no wrong way to play DD. as a dm when there's an interaction between an npc and the player I always speak in the first person as the NPC, and what invariably happens, maybe not over one session or two sessions, but over the life of the campaign, the character will eventually also get rid of that my character says and just start to speak in the first person. It's just a level of comfort people have to get with the game. So, you know, that's that's a good strategy to employ if you're trying to get your players to role play more, is as a DM, always speak from that NPC's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Players will eventually pick that up. Yeah, yeah, and I think that once the uh, the players become comfortable within their own group, I mean, yeah, that's part of it too. Are you playing with strangers? Or are you playing with your friends? Right, and oftentimes, every time I start a new campaign or a new story or something like that, there's inevitably one or two new people because I can't keep everybody together because real life happens, and then there's always that little awkward moment of like two or three months before people get to really kind of warm up to each other. Can I, can I make a shameful confession as a DM, and especially with Greg in here? Oh, you're a shameful shame person. Away. Why no. not? I think I actually enjoy the game more now at, at my point in my dungeon mastering storied career, career <laughs> when I'm playing with new people. Really? Yeah. I mean... I, I enjoy running for, the, you know, the old guard group. You know, they're all my age and playing forever. They've been playing together for going on four mm-hmm, years now. Mm-hmm. It's comfortable. It's comfortable, but 
Um, I know what the, there's no surprises from them. Oh, I see where you're going. Right? Right. So I still get the joy out of DMing, you know, creating a world, seeing how they're going to mess it up and <laughs> yet still survive. But I always enjoy when I have somebody new to see what they bring to the table. It's a fresh outlook. Um, I was running at the local game store uh, a few months ago, and uh, this girl showed up. She was probably junior high, and she was so excited to be playing D&D. And that was fun. You know, you don't, I don't see that from my group. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's hard to compete with that, and, and you shouldn't. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's just intrinsically exciting to get somebody who's, who's got all that wide-eyed wonder yeah. of the game, whereas we're just like, okay, what are we going to kill this week? But even if somebody just shows up, I mean, I, I uh, ran a game last Wednesday, and a guy showed up, and he was playing a pacifist paladin, um, <laughs> which, you know, he, he was basically doing, uh, you know, non-lethal whenever he would drop a foe. And if somebody yeah. else had dropped a foe, he would want to make a healing Heal check to try, to try to keep them alive. Would I want to play a group full of people playing pacifist paladins? Probably not. But Is he truly a pacifist, or is he just a not going to take it down I, I to think the he dirt just didn't want to take life yeah, yeah. that was his, yeah, his overwhelming take. respect for life yeah. but not necessarily an overwhelming respect for maiming which <laughs> leads to an interesting dilemma can you <laughs> smite for non-lethal damage um, so mm. people who play 5th edition you can only do non-lethal on melee attacks um, yeah so even I don't believe ranged melee uh, you can do non-lethal yeah, but spells cannot do non-lethal yeah you know now a smite is delivered with a melee weapon does that count as it's it's a different kind of damage. It's not bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing. So, hmm. um, my ruling is no. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, well, after this, I'm going to try to do more unpredictable, going off half cock things from now on. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll make it a little bit more interesting for me as a DM. So, <laughs> so that whole social interaction thing. Um, the other thing, the one last point with that: if you're going to start a campaign that focuses on that, you need to keep notes um, because. The, oh yes, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, invariably no. they're going to come back around and talk to somebody they talked before, and it, it can get very layered. It can be like an onion. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can be fun running those games. And nothing is more embarrassing as a DM than when your players say, "Well, we just talked to this guy six months ago," and it, yeah, and, and you're t- like, "I've slept that? since then, and you've talked to a thousand people <laughs> <Yeah>. since." <laughs> what was his name? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was. Yeah, I, I've gotten to the point where I always ask the players for a recap from last session just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Yeah, and to see if they were listening. And that's a good point um, in terms of what makes a good game, a continuing game, is that recap. Sometimes it's all I can do to just try to get the game going, let alone remembering what happened the last time. And I'm kind of depending on my players to be at least somewhat familiar with what happened in last week's episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's another role players used to take. You used to have somebody who would keep, like, a campaign log frequently in the old days. You don't see that as much no, anymore. I don't think so. Um, I actually had a good friend of mine in my biweekly game, and he published the campaign log on Ian, where we, we mentioned it before. Yeah. Um, still up there. But it was, usually, it was usually a, you know, a few runs behind, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. It wasn't always up to date. But it, was, it was from his perspective, which made it even more humorous. It, it was great. Especially because he, he didn't like Greg's character. He yeah. thought he was flighty, and which he was because yeah, he was, I was. too backseat. That was kind of the fun part of it, though. And after a while, just like in real life. Yeah. Nobody really likes Greg. I know. It happens. Uh, 
It's my burden. <laughs> well, the fun thing is after he started writing the notes, I actually started doing things in game, playing off of what he did in the notes to, hmm. you know, in- inflame his annoyance with my character. And that is part <laughs> of uh, when, when I'm trying to design adventures, it can be annoying is that maybe you're trying to drop a hint from an NPC through social interaction. And on my monthly group especially, they don't talk amongst themselves at the table very much. No, we don't. And I never know whether they've actually picked up the clue or not. So I tend to start to hit them over the head with it until somebody finally is like, okay, we got it. Yeah, we know. We're supposed to go to the to the mountain shrine. And I'm like, okay, fine. That's all I was well, looking for. Why do I see this in my mind's eye, your game? So Eric's at the head of the table and all these other guys are in their comfy chairs, they're almost half asleep, and, you know, all of a sudden the interaction starts and they're not talking to one another, but as soon as the dice rolls, you know, roll for initiative, they all wake up and then they're going. That, that's some of it. It's more than that, I think, I've played games like that, don't get me wrong, but with this group, it's that they've role-played for many years, so they all get it, and they know that they all get it, but yeah. me as a DM, I, I'm not sure, like, because they're not talking about it. You know, so try to, I think I think we're also kind of assuming. Well, somebody's got it, or somebody's going to figure out. You know, uh, why do I see Greg in a recliner? <laughs> God, I wish I had one. But, no, he, uh, he, Greg shows up. He's practically got like a wagon with his his gaming acronym. my dice. Yeah, his dice and snacks and so anyway, <laughs> let's let's keep got going. a little uh, off yeah. topic there. Okay, so for adventures, where do you know where do you draw inspiration when you're designing an adventure, Dean? Uh, I would have to say that for the most part, um, through books that I have read or little ideas that have hit me in through real life, but they could also be coming from, you know, I I don't want to say movies and books and stuff, but little ideas that I've heard maybe in the news or, uh, things that have happened in reality. And it's just a little nugget, a little kernel of something that's like, wow, that's kind of cool. And then you try to do it. Now, I have a tendency to do one-shot adventures or one- or two-shot adventures. Um, I find that my DMing is stronger when I can make a solid, really good adventure that is, you know, can be done in one or two sessions. And my players like that. So I don't do a lot of big long story arc type stuff unless I've purchased it and it's been pre-generated so most of my stuff is uh, you know coming from books in real life yeah I'm the exact opposite yeah, <laughs> in, ter- yeah, you in totally terms are. of story arcs yeah. at least um, immensely long story arcs but they have but they usually have relatively well defined chapters you yeah. know either mm-hmm. either a one run thing or maybe over two you know it takes us a couple to get through the dungeon or you know Killing the dragon. And we'll, we'll talk more detail about story arcs in a yeah. bit, but for I th- ideas. Before you go yeah. on, I think part of the reason is that my regularity of being able to game may be less than yours because yeah. in addition to being a role player, I'm also the, I don't know, lead host for my board game group. Yeah. And there's more people who play board games in my group than there are that play the role playing in D&D. So that's part of it. Board games are huge. We should probably talk about those at some point, but um, not now, not today. Um, <laughs> yeah. So for it's funny you mentioned real life. I used to run a game, uh, I believe it was West End Games, put out a James Bond 007 game back in the 80s, and, and my friends and I were into James Bond. So, yeah, I think so. So we picked that up, and uh, as 
part of the modules for that game, they would have like a little manila envelope and they would have like f- like fake newspaper clippings. A or, dossier. Yeah, they have a little dossier that is. Well, it was sort of fun because after you went through the modules, you could design your own adventures. And what I would do is I would just get up a newspaper and I would find an article, you know, terrorist bomb goes off in Beirut. And I'd clip it out and I'd be like, okay, well, here's, here's the newspaper article. But in fact, this wasn't a terrorist bomb. It was, you know, Cobra or, or whatever. Um, that's G.I. Joe, I think, right? Yes, yeah, it is. Um, Spectre. You're, you're mixing Spectre. your... Um, so villain organizations so you can just I mean like Dean said you can listen to the news and get stuff one tip I have for idea generation uh, take a shower (laughs) there's this weird psychological effect a lot of gamers need showers let me explain Or, or drive a long distance. There's a weird psychological effect that if you're engaged in an autonomous task, something that doesn't take a lot of brain power um, that you can't escape from is actually more creative so if you're really stuck Hop in the shower because showering is an automated task. You don't really have to think about hmm. it when you're cleaning yourself. Same with driving cars, assuming you're not 17 years old. Is that um, or say, even going to the bathroom. I was going to say, that's, they say some of the best ideas come, come on, from the that's crapper. That's the exact same thing. <laughs> yep. You're, you're engaging in a task you don't have to think about. Freeze up that brain. So sounds silly, but it actually works. Yeah. Yep. Um, part of our uh, uh, notes here, and you mentioned it before, plagiarize, plagiarize. That's why God made your eyes. I don't so much plagiarize, but if something comes across, you know, that I like, I may take it and adapt it and change it for my own. Yeah. And is that plagiarizing or is that just no, I think that's how inspiration. It, I mean, we already talked about there's only seven basic stories. Right. Right. So, so everything's been plagiarized a little bit. Yeah. And if you're really worried about, uh, you know copyright infringement go to the greek myths there are some great stories in greek myths that's that's a really good point I've, copyright free stories yeah, that's right yeah. i don't think odysseus is going to be tracking you down i think they're finally in the public the, domain the descendants of yeah the estate of odysseus. but i mean uh for instance when we're going to talk about this uh in the dm's guild review you find some good stuff that's been published and it may be everything you're looking for, but it doesn't quite fit for your stuff. It's so easy to just adjust the stuff because what the heck? You've already paid for it or obtained it in some way, shape, or form. Make it your own. Give it to your players in a different version that fits for their their world, their campaign, or what have you. Yeah. And don't worry if they recognize, oh, yeah, that's that one module. You know, I don't think most people care. Well, and uh, and if you're going to change it a little bit, then the thing is, is you're sitting around saying, "Oh God, this this isn't going to go the way it's supposed to go." And that and can you, you wait for something to be different, and whether it is or whether it isn't, you still have that anticipation. And that can catch a player who is familiar with that material off guard. Because I did that, I took one that a player had run before and knew it very well, and I could see the the, the realization in his eyes that oh. I know what adventure this is. And he's like all ready and set. And he's like, I know exactly how to walk through this. Yeah. Well, he turns that corner and what was supposed to be there, it may look the same, but what was there was totally different. And he was not ready for what it was. Yeah. There's two points on that. Uh, Playing Adventures League, a lot of times you play the same adventure with different characters. And it's interesting to see how one DM runs it versus another. I've played a couple adventures where... If you didn't know they were the same adventure, you would have a very hard time telling they were because the DMing styles were so different mm-hmm. and one person was much more freeform. So that's interesting. But you remind me of another um, 
old D&D story that who knows whether it's true or not, but the, but the story goes that uh, in the Tomb of Annihilation, right in the entranceway, there's two ways in, two big black voids. And uh, one of them leads into the tomb. The other one is a sphere of annihilation. And you don't really know which is which. So the story goes that a player had run through it before with a different character and takes the party, and the party decides they're going to all go through the right tomb, the, the right one. And he says, well, here, let me hold your gear, and if it's because they don't know it's a sphere of annihilation. And if that's not the right way, um, come back, and we'll go through the other way. So they all give him his, his gear, <laughs> their gear. They all go through the right one. Well, he knows it's a sphere of annihilation, so he takes all the party's magic items and just heads back to town because he's f- made off far better than he would going through the Tomb of Annihilation because he has nice. six people's magic nice. items. The problem should have been there. Well, if it's not the right way, come back. Well, they didn't know it was a sphere uh, of guess, annihilation. Okay, they didn't know it was... Okay. You know, yeah. and it was old school, so there was a lot of stuff that would destroy your magic items. Right. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So what, do you have any books or movies? I, we've said before... You know, uh, Conan by Robert E. Howard was the inspiration, a big inspiration behind the whole phenomenon of the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. But do you have books or anything that stand out as your, I don't know, not a go-to source, but things that have really inspired you to create stuff? You know, I have, you know, when people ask me what, you know, what I recommend for books, I always go back to the core of fantasy for me, which is, um, you know, Robert E. Howard, Fritz Lieber with the Faffer and the mm-hmm. Grey Mouser, Michael Moorcock yes. with the Elric saga, Tolkien, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and even that sort of fluff stuff that came out, Robert Asprin, a lot of his stuff, yeah. the Thieves' World uh, Thieves anthologies. World, yeah, Thieves' World has heavily influenced my town setting yeah. that we're currently in right Piers now. Piers Anthony with the Xanth stuff. Uh, you know, it's a lot of those. Some, some quirkiness going on. So, you know, I read voraciously when I was younger, two books a week up until I was about 37 or 38 years old. That's so, when real life hit him finally. Yeah, that's when, when real life hit. Now I have a hard time finishing a book in, you know, a month or a year, I think. Uh, but, you know, a lot of TV series. Uh, you know, I love the Viking series. Uh even Altered Carbon that just came out for, mm-hmm. like, more of a, a cyberpunk sort of feel. Um, but I don't so much draw entire plots. I draw ideas. I right. get one idea, and then I sort of weave it. I think about it um, and uh, put it into a, a separate arc, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but do you guys know we have a new sponsor? No, I did not. I knew I this. missed that email. I yeah, we're this. becoming quite popular. Yeah, across, I, ca- I cashed the, the check. Greg. Oh, wait, never mind. Oh. I shouldn't have mentioned that to him. Okay. Oh, that's right. Gosh, now we got to split it three ways. Well, now we need an independent let, accountant. Since we have this. a sponsor, we have to give our sponsor time. So let's take a moment and listen uh, to the words of our new sponsor. The world is a dangerous place and death lurks around every corner. Wouldn't you feel better knowing your future was secure? Here at Dark Sun Insurance, your timely resurrection is our number one goal. We offer a variety of resurrection policies tailored to your individual needs. Our platinum level policy even covers disintegration by a sorcerer king. Do you frequently delve into dangerous places? For a small fee, your policy can include dungeon side assistance. Our friendly kinders will recover your remains no matter your location. Do you want peace of mind while you're wandering the burnt world? Don't settle for lesser spells that may decrease your level or constitution. Contact Dark Sun Insurance today for a resurrection policy and achieve the only peace of mind available on the godforsaken world you call home. 
Dark Sun Insurance is wholly owned and operated by Orcus Holding Company. Contracts are invalid when not signed in blood and a deposit of one soul is required. Resurrection guaranteed within 160 years. Dark Sun Insurance. You gotta love them. Yeah, I might have to look into that. I'm a little worried about the holding company, though. <laughs> That's, uh, that could that could be did you a guys loophole. Pick, did you pick up on the legal speak at the end? I did, yeah. yeah. I always glaze over during that stuff. There's a couple yeah. of things that might be hard to come by. Well, you know, but if you're dead, what do you got to lose? That's right, yes. yeah. That's Especially exactly. in Dark Sun, where, where death is cheap. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if... Do you guys ever play Dark Sun campaign setting? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm familiar with it, but I have not, no. Yeah, it's, uh, it was uh, interesting. It's... Quite brutal. Yeah. Um, played it for one or two adventures back in the day. Um, or before our sponsor, uh, we were talking a little bit about plagiarizing, you know, from other DMs and books and stuff like that. Um, we have on our notes here my old stuff. And I'm glad you put that in there because about a year ago, I went up to my attic. I was trying to clean some stuff out, and I was moving my old D&D stuff around. And I thought, why in the world is this stuff up here it should be down and getting new life breathed into it and i have been using a lot of my old stuff that was made back in the 80s and it's now finding new life and new purpose in the 2000s and i have to say i was pretty damned creative yeah when i had a lot more time yes and that's really kind of disappointing (laughs) um i was amazed at how prolific i was at making all this stuff and writing stuff down and the detail that I went in, I'm like, holy crap, kid, what in the world did you do if you weren't doing this? And I kind of look back at myself as a man, I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do with old stuff, uh, Greg, in my campaign, we have an NPC named Bullen Braxen, halfling (laughs) rogue, right? You know Bullen, right? Oh, yeah. Bullen was a player character back in my high school game. I, I DM'd him. And I just lifted and made an NPC because I know so much about him. The player put yes. five years' worth of development into this character. Why would I just throw it out? And some of my player characters are coming back to life as NPCs. And yeah. that's that's a really great thing. If you don't have good NPCs for your stuff, and maybe you've been playing for a while and you've got some player characters that you haven't done, use them. Yeah. You know them better we, than anybody. We do that a lot in uh, my superhero games uh, with my friends. The, the the player characters that we ran in the eighties, they're all the um, the old guard people running the spy organizations and the uh, the corporations that fund the new heroes now. And then you know the characters. Oh, I remember. Yeah, you know Pharaoh. That that was a really that was an excellent character. That was an excellent hero. And yeah, we do that all the time. Yeah. I will have to say though, <laughs> I get a little upset. When my new players start to abuse my old player characters. <laughs> I use other people's characters. I don't have nearly so many of my own, so I don't care if they, they go away. But it would be disappointing if they killed Bulin because he's had so much uh, experience and such a rich backstory, essentially. Yeah. And he's been pretty helpful. And let's face it, we need a lot of help. <laughs> At times. Yeah. Um, Dragon. <laughs> so we've covered a lot, a lot of material, but um, I want to talk about how how to actually wrap your mind around designing an adventure. We've talked about inspirations, what to include, what kind of experiences you want to include, but um, I think this is a good point to, to bring up. Um, when you design an adventure, you really need to avoid the railroad. Yeah. And it's hard for new DMs. You, you put all this effort into, this is the story I want to tell, 
and invariably it goes off the rails. And that's not the story you end up telling because they forget it's cooperative storytelling. It's not just them. Um, so you can have in your mind how you think the adventure is going to turn out, but it's probably not going to turn out that way. No. And you have to be ready for that. I mean, even if it's even if you have a very direct goal, you have to go here. You have to do this thing. The characters they're going to not take the straight path. They're going to go off on the side trip. And um, yeah, I know. was I was just DMing um, last week, as a matter of fact, the Adventures League module. Adventures League modules, you have very little room for going off the rails. I mean, there's, you get what you get, and, and you have some liberties as a DM, but they want the module to be run pretty consistently because it's organized play. Players were in a guard tower, and they had decided that they were going to go into the neighboring guard tower and get uh, ask for help or report something. Well, there's no allowance for that in the in the module. In fact, the guard tower they there, and the, characters, the guards were knocked out by the bad guy. So they sort of didn't realize... Uh, why or didn't ask why the guards were knocked out, but they figured, let's go to the other guard tower and tell them, hey, these guys are knocked out. Well, you have several options as a DM. Like, this isn't accounted for in the module. Theoretically, the other guards might just arrest them and the module's over. You're yeah. thrown in jail. Um, Boom, so you have it. to sort of make stuff up on the fly. My solution to that was that the guards in the other guard tower were slightly inebriated and didn't like the guards in the tower they were in. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> so, maybe they wanted their jobs. Yeah, so they didn't care. They were like, well, you know, that's, that's their problem. They'll probably lose their job. I'll get promoted out of it. Thanks for letting us know. So less than helpful to, rather than arresting the characters. So, you know, to avoid railroading, a lot of times you have to sort of come up with stuff on the fly and try to still keep the characters on track. Mm -hmm. um, I had a really bad experience. We, uh, another friend years ago had played a Vampire the Masquerade, run a Vampire the Masquerade game, was excited for everybody to play, so we all made characters. Our characters essentially did nothing. We played, I think, two sessions, and it was just him pushing us through scene to scene in the adventure, and nothing we did really mattered. It was destined to happen. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard about a, a game that some friends of mine played in and the um it was it was it was a classic railroad and the game master uh they put the characters in a setting that they were not familiar with they were in a place that they didn't know and the uh, game master created an npc from that world that knew everything and and forced the player characters to follow that npc down the trail to yeah. the end of it and and you know that, that gets talked about a lot because everybody, everybody uses that as an example of jesus christ i hated that that was awful because the player were not making any decisions. Yeah. They were sitting there waiting for the Game Master's NPC to tell them where to go and what to do. Eric, were you saying that your characters were trying to do something that no matter what they did, despite dice rolls or interaction yeah. with Yeah, the we were just, if, if, you know, talking to, you know, NPC number one um, was going to lead us to NPC number two, it didn't like if we tried to go somewhere different that basically wasn't allowed so so to speak and we would just end up at npc number two which would lead us to location number three that would lead us you know and it wasn't it's it wasn't developed it wasn't our choice it was just going through yeah it was not choose your own adventure it was you've chosen my adventure yeah, and essentially go. and very long descriptions he had stuff written out and mm, i'm like oh, it God. felt like he was reading us a, a story Ugh. now <laughs> railroading um do you consider a dungeon crawl where you kind of go from one room to the next and the only other option is to turn back? Do you consider that railroading? Not really, because no. 
characters can, I mean, they could, classic example, right? Uh, yeah, you want to clear a dungeon. You don't necessarily have to clear it room by room. You could just walk all the way through the hallways to the end, start at the backside. But guess what? If there's an alarm, you're going to set off that alarm, and all those creatures are now behind you, behind you, between right. you and the entrance. You have that. You know, and you have no walls are, are railroady inherently because there's only right. okay. a limited number of paths. I just wanted to make that clear because some adventures, they don't have to be, but they as you said, inherently are railroady because you've got one way to go and one way out. Yeah. But for instance, let's say the, the players know that too, though. Why they, they to, uh, that. You know, here's here's a good example. You're in a dungeon. Things are nasty. One of my characters that, that I play in eventually has a helmet teleportation. Well, we're in a uh, adventure tier three, and we have to rescue these villagers. And the module is set up such that um, you're supposed to spend the night in the dark with these villagers, right? And have to protect them against wild wolves or something crazy. And I'm like, I could just take my home teleportation and teleport back to the end and then come back. Why wouldn't we do that? And the DM's like, well, it's not going to work here. Well, that's railroad. You've just basically yeah, said, right. you know, here's my character who worked hard to get his magic item. And he can't use it. A good DM's like, okay, right, fine. I'll just, I'll just adapt the adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the things out, but guess what? There's still some villagers missing, so you need to stay in the woods, right? You know, you can adapt the adventure so to account for player actions and still, you know, use the adventure you've written or are running. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good example of, you know, a DM not uh, accommodating the player's decisions and just basically saying it's going to play out the way I want it to play out because that's what it says in front of me on the page. Um, so we'll, we'll probably talk about railroading. Many more times. Oh, um, yes. You, you can't up. get away from it. <laughs> One of the ways I like to think about uh, adventure design is campaigns are like novels and adventures are like movies. So novels take their time in developing their story. They have a lot more you know, characters involved. There's uh, multiple points of conflict, climax, resolution. Um, adventures need to be more like a movie. You have a limited number of scenes. You want those characters to move through those scenes um, with sort of mini, mini uh, conflicts, resolutions, climax, and then the overarching one, the big bad boss fight. That's how I tend to think about adventures. And I think that's a very accurate description. And whether people knew it or not, that's essentially what they do when they design their adventures. Um, It's got a a beginning, a middle, and an end. And... Everything's going to happen within that, and a lot of outside forces probably are not going to affect it, regardless of whether you're in a campaign setting or not. Yeah. Now, the, the old stuff, the old published modules were basically just numbered rooms, right? Yes. It's one, two, three, whatever one. That's, the new stuff is much more cinematic in nature, even novel-like in nature. That, yes. That Tomb of Annihilation, you know, there was a lot of NPCs players could run into at random. You know, they just sort of, oh, this person shows up. Um, a lot of stuff when they're actually um, in the tomb, actual random effects, encounters um, that you might have, two or three of them that you have to keep track of as a DM. So that, that can be more challenging, but it makes the game more interesting for the players. Yeah. Um, now, uh, when you've got a campaign, you've got your campaign arc and maybe your story arc and all that good stuff. I, again, like I said, I don't do a lot of that. I do have it. Don't get me wrong. 
What do you do to keep that going? I mean, um, I find it interesting that that is a big part of how you do your gaming. you got big campaign story arcs and stuff like that. How much time do you put into that? Do you, does that develop? Of course it develops as your players go, but is it something that you have written down and kind of had a, a full outline of what you would like it to do to be? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff is front-loaded before the campaign even begins. So the, the long-running campaign, um, and I'm free to disclose this because I've since jettisoned this, <laughs> um, but I run in Greyhawk. IU's had taken over some stuff. There's some bunch of politics just Greyhawk-wise between IU's and uh, Grazit and Igawiv. Um and the idea was that there was going to be a conflict between uh, Grazit and another demon lord. And Ayuz was being manipulated as part of that conflict. So I treat it like an onion. Um, there's a core um, effect or a core cause of everything. But the players aren't anywhere near that at campaign start. Um, and I try to introduce elements of it that get them deeper and deeper into the inner layers of the onion as the play goes on. Uh, it has a couple advantages to doing it that way is that since the players don't have that core bit of information, I'm free to change it. Until mm -hmm. they discover something yeah. that locks me into an arc, I can change it all I want. So, oh, it's it's not Grazit, it's Jubilex. You know, the, he's the one because he suits is better, you know. Um, and it's not Ayuz who's being manipulated. It's it's somebody else, somebody from the Fey Realms who's, who's actually doing the manipulation. Um, that stuff sort of I start with a point and then I modify it and it's only locked in when the characters actually run into a piece of information that's relevant to that arc. Or have dinner with Ayus. Or have dinner and, and uh, you know. Dinner make, and succubi with Ayus. Yes, <laughs> and, and there's a succubus who became. Do you afraid. add, uh, let me back up a second here. When I start my new games and characters are, re, are rolled up, new characters, I always ask them to come up with a background, and of late I've been requiring them to send me those backgrounds so that I can kind of include some of those interesting tidbits, whether they're, you know, uh, secrets from their childhood or, you know, whatever it makes their character theirs and their own and makes them unique. I try to add that in, a little nod to their effort at making mm -hmm. a character. Yeah, Eric's been pretty good about that, working. Uh, most of our characters had some kind of background, some longer or more complex than others, and he had he did manage to weave our characters' personal story arcs into the campaign story arcs by making the, the you know, the that necromancer you're searching for or that family fortune you're trying to recover making the the mechanism of that part of the plot mm -hmm. of the of the core onion story element yeah essentially i have three arcs i keep track of um i have my campaign arc that's the overarching goal of the campaign when that that's resolved that campaign's essentially done i mean we could i could try to come up with something new to start a whole new fresh but that's my my overarching then I have the story arc, which is essentially the adventure arc. Um, and that can s span multiple sessions. I mean, if it's to um, you know, recover a, a lost artifact, that's a story arc. Now that lost artifact is gonna somehow tie in to the campaign arc, right? So those story arcs relate to the campaign arc. And then I have character arcs. And that's that um, either the 
player has come up with a goal for their character or I have come up with um, some arc for that character um, in terms of Greg's character, his mother had been killed by a, a necromancer. And um, unbeknownst to him, um, she was a ghost because she had unresolved conflict. Now, when he made the background, obviously he didn't include that, but I included that. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out it was even more grim than that because— uh, He got pretty grim. Yeah, she, she, she <laughs> wasn't actually entirely dead. She had been banished to one of the levels of hell and uh, was being tortured. Um, and I drug all the rest of the players down there with me. <laughs> That's right. Which— you know, and, and here as a DM, I'm not necessarily railroading the characters, but when you are fighting an evil necromancer and in his lab is a magic portal, and through that portal, Rahuel sees her mother on a torture rack being tortured, yep, screaming in agony. I jumped right through. I pretty no much hesitation. know that party's going through that magic portal, right? I mean, yeah. Yep. So, yep. you know, that's good. To me, that's good storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, that's. And it's surprising for the characters. It fits in with what I had planned. Um, they could have left her. I would have dealt with that. But I was pretty sure they weren't going to. No. Right. Um, the other part with character arcs is, um, and this is something that after years of DMing, I started to incorporate. I have an arc for each individual character. And it can be multiple things going on. But I try to include one development per adventure for a PC. So one of those PCs will have a development during the adventure that's going to push their arc forward a step. Sort of increase, tell their story Say a little bit more. Say that again, one development for one character or yeah. all characters? One character. One you character. don't want to overload it. So yeah. if a, if a arc is to meet a particular NPC in a city, um, one of my other players, his father, we, I used to call my campaign the orphans because everybody started like orphaned. All their parents had been killed. The riskiest profession in a D&D campaign setting, the parent of an adventure. Yes, exactly. Yep. Um, so he, his father had some items that had been stolen from him. Well, they're going through the city to find uh, this NPC, and he sees his father's cloak on, a, on an, another NPC. You know, kind of stuff that could happen. They were in the right location, roughly, from where he was from. This NPC had been one of them that had waylaid his father. So in addition to the main story arc, we now have, okay, how's this character going to resolve their thing? Like, that's that's my dad's cloak. I need to, to pursue that. Um, we're not going to take the whole adventure on that, but there's going to be a little minor scene where, where he's going to interact with that NPC. So always try to incorporate that, and it makes the players feel like, their stories getting told as opposed to your stories getting told. Yeah. Um, that worked out well. So I'm big in fan of arcs and thinking about adventures as movies. Um, you know, the literary elements of telling a story sort of come into adventure design. And we've mentioned many of them, but let me just run down the list. Um, action, character, conflict, mood, pace, setting, and tone. And a lot of these are sort of already set. We sort of have default settings um, in terms of the mood, the tone of a setting. Mm -hmm. I mean, our campaign usually has a, a specific tone. You run Call of Cthulhu, that has a mood and a tone right. to it, it's right? It's kind of one in the it's same. built in. Um, yeah. Most, mm -hmm. most game systems automatically set your mood and tone for you. Um, the pace, I notice a lot of people struggle with. Um, when I run an adventure... I always try to have a combat in the first hour and at least one other combat in a four-hour session. Even in groups that are heavy role play, um, it helps keep things moving. Um, 
that that inherently involves conflict, which is another one of the elements, um, and it forces the story to get pushed along if you include those sort of high points of combat. Uh, I don't know if Greg has mentioned, uh, you know, noticed that or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, players tend to expect there's going to be the big boss fight at the end. I mean, that's just that's just kind of a function of D and D, and then in any role playing game, you know. You're you're after the big villain, the big creature, the big payoff, and uh, there's going to be a fight for that at the end, unless yeah. you are and, really good at talking yourself. And I out do of that a lot of times. If you're at a table and you're starting to lose the players, people are getting bored. They're watching. They're checking their cell phones and everything. Throw a combat in, random yeah. combat. That's what I miss about first edition: the the random encounter tables. Yeah. You know, we don't use those so much anymore, but I tell you what, they're handy to get everybody's attention focused back on the game. When, when an you know, arrow embeds itself in your chest from the darkness, you tend to tend to yeah. start looking at your character <laughs> sheet. Yeah, start draining those resources. Yep. Exactly. But, um, you know, again, character, NPCs can add a lot to an adventure. Conflict is a requirement. If you're not thinking about, you know, what, what conflict are the characters trying to overcome, you probably haven't designed a good adventure. Um, and... Uh, keep the action flowing, you know? And one thing that just um, kind of as a metagame sort of thing that I try to do, I try to make sure that there's as few distractions as possible when I'm playing the game. Um, It could be anything from, have your dogs been fed? You know, type of stuff. You don't want stuff from the outside world, the real world, coming in, because you're there for such a short amount of time in reality. You know, four, maybe six hours... Um, but you've done your best to try to schedule these games, and everybody's got a busy schedule. And when things like real life get in the way, you know, someone they, they always crop up at exactly the wrong time. Right, exactly, and it can be a real pain in the butt. And it can, as a DM, it can really tick me off when you know, hey, I gotta you know come by today and do this or whatever, and and it's like, oh man, just try to make sure that as a DM. That you insulate your gaming group from the outside world. Yeah, and it's hard, and it's a fine line. I mean, as yeah. after you're an adult, um, you know, people have stuff. We have one of our players is a doctor, and every once in a while he's on call, so right. he's he's stepping out to answer a page. You know, how do we get mad about that? You can't. You know, the guys, no. <laughs> it's the hospital <laughs> yeah. calling the guy. Somebody's yeah. dying. He yeah. needs to fix that. It's <laughs> so I guess that takes precedence over over yeah. what his character's doing. We just, right, but at the same time, you know. When the significant other calls and says, you know, uh, when are you coming home? Well, yeah. hopefully your players have already said to their significant others or the rest of the world that I'm going to be gone for five hours. Don't bother me. Yeah. Uh, that's ideally the way it works. And you know what? The other thing, too, is if if as a DM, and this doesn't bear directly on our topic, but if you're finding yourself being frustrated more frequently than not, maybe it's time to take a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, not everybody, you know, DMing can be a chore at times. Um, and if you're not having fun doing it, let somebody else do it for a while. And you know? that's kind of a good point. And not that we're necessarily wrapping up, but this needs to be said. All this stuff that we've been talking about, if you're a player and you're listening to this and you're considering being a DM, go for it. But if you're not and you're going to remain a player, Give your DM some appreciation and some gratitude because there's a lot of damn hard work that went into this, and it is taxing. And 
there used to be a, a day, and I don't know what it was, is DM Appreciation Day. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't know when it was. I think it's in September. I could be wrong. It's an easy Google search, but it's out there. Appreciate the work that your DM does for you. Be involved in the game. And we're going to be talking about players in an upcoming podcast. Um, but be there for your DM. Be involved in the game. Yeah, I would agree. And we are sort of running out of time, um, but we do have a DMs Guild uh, plug. And actually, I realize that not everything we're uh, plugging is from DMs Guild. That uh, Glory Hole Dwarven Mine was actually, I believe, on RPG Now. They're all sort of that one bookshelf um, site or a group that they run all those downloadable sites. So um, if anybody was looking for that, I apologize. It was on, on a different site. Um, but I believe Dean's going to provide a review of something that was on DM's Guild. Yes, uh, it's Nerzugal, if I'm pronouncing that right, Nerzugal's Dungeon Master Toolkit 2. Uh, Nerzugal is Stephen Williams. Uh, he's the one who published it, and it is the, as I said, the Dungeon Master's Toolkit 2. And if I could say in a very short bit right here, this is top-notch quality, and this could be something that Wizards of the Coast published and put out. Yeah, he, um, he, this, really, he really is, took their, uh, their whole uh, graphic language and applied it yeah. to his document. This, is, this could be, maybe even should be, an official supplement. Yeah, I mean, the, the quality, how many, you said it's like, uh, how many pages? 270 pages. 270 pages, it's massive, and it's free, it's pay what you want. Yes, and it has uh, five dungeons, five one-shots, ten puzzles, a hundred plus magic items and monsters, and the artwork is top-notch if you're using the online downloaded Adobe Acrobat um, uh version of it you can go to the table of contents and click on it and pop you right there at that page um what i think is one of the best parts of this granted you've got five dungeons five one shots so if you're a new dm and it's done by level you know one to three one to five four to six four to seven that type of stuff you could just open the book pop it into your campaign setting and you are good to go it's got some puzzles so if even if you're coming up with something that uh, you're having a hard time coming up with something for your adventure. You need some puzzles? He's got 10 of them there. You know, random encounter tables, which I thought was the best thing for different topographies. Desert, forest, jungle, plains, mountains, swamps, all that kind of stuff. Even high seas, random encounters. And yeah. in those random encounters are these little nuggets of an idea that you could turn into a much bigger adventure. Yeah, stuff like that's invaluable when you're just looking. You just got to grab something. I also like, um, like I said, I play with a lot of people who've been playing D&D for years. And some of them have the monsters memorized. They run into a monster. They know its weaknesses, yep. its vulnerabilities. They know what it, I mean, they could rattle off the statistics. So I really appreciate a supplement that not only provides new monsters that players aren't familiar with, but monsters that are balanced. And also... Some of the familiar monsters that have a tweak to them, yeah, that they're different than what you get. For instance, the goblins. If we're going to go to the, we've got a goblin, a pitiful goblin, you know, who has a tendency to run away more often than not. Yeah, you know, so maybe you're getting chasing this guy down the hallway, or a goblin brute who happens to be just a little bit hardier than your typical goblin. And then he's also got the uh, uh, a lot of NPCs that are of the regular classes that we know and love, but they've got a tweak to them that makes them a little bit, uh, I hate to use the word, more unique, but more interesting. 
gives everything a little bit more character. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts charging for this at some point because it's definitely the suggested donation is $15, which is probably a reasonable price. I think this is actually a, probably a $20 to $25 yeah. value. So hopefully it's still pay what you will, allows you to look at it, then decide what you think it's worth and, and pay the author a little bit. Here's the thing that really gets me. This is toolkit Two. Yeah, I haven't looked at Toolkit 1 yet. <laughs> I'm interested to see what Toolkit 1 is. So, Well, that's our DM Guild review. It's Nerzogal's. Uh, Greg, pronounce that for me. Yeah, Nerzugal. Ner- Nerzugal Dungeon Master Kit Toolkit 2. It's a little Cthulhu-y. Just a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that probably wraps up our, our podcast. You know, we could talk for another hour on adventure design, but hopefully, you know, this has given... People have DM'd for a long time, maybe a new outlook on things, a couple tips. People who are thinking about DMing, the confidence to actually go through, set up an adventure. Because like I said, as a DM, creating content and homebrewing is probably the most rewarding aspect of DMing. Um, And that's why I wanted to do the podcast. So hopefully we've achieved that goal. And if you have some comments that you want to... uh say about what we were just talking let us know we've been hearing from some of you and it's really great to be able to interact with you in a different way not just talking at you but also talking with you on our social media so to that end greg we we really appreciate that feedback and the best place to give us that feedback is on facebook on our page the grognards uh you can also shoot us a tweet uh i know we don't go there very often but at uh, at t grognards and on instagram we are the underscore grognards and if you want to shoot us an email we are gamers at the grognards.com all right and that's a wrap for this adventure thank you very much for tuning in and listening for the grognards i'm dean geiken i'm eric holly and i'm greg ziggler 